So this morning, for those of you who have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 4, actually, where Shelby was reading out of. So uh, if you will, start turning your Bibles over there. And so the video, they were talking about this water, and they were trying to figure out what was so special about the water. And so we're going to be talking about that this morning. I'm going to kind of just give you a little bit of a a brief overview. The Pharisees knew that Jesus had been uh, baptizing many, many people at this time. And so at this point, Jesus was not ready to confront the Pharisees. It just wasn't the time in his ministry for him to do that. And so as the Pharisees were were coming upon him, he left Judea and he's going to be returning to Galilee. Now, a lot of the Jewish people would not travel through Samaria on their way uh, to Galilee. And so they would take the long way around, but he actually deliberately and intentionally went straight through Samaria on his way. And so eventually he's going to come to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to Joseph, and this is going to be where uh, Jacob's well was. And so it's going to be about noontime in the day. Now, typically back then, women went to draw water at two times in the day. They went in the morning time, and then they went again in the evening time. It was cooler then. It was also sometimes the only social gathering that some of the women experienced at that time. But this one particular woman happened to be there at the noontime hour, and a Samaritan woman was there, and she went to draw water, and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. And he was alone at that time because the disciples had gone into town um, to buy some food and supplies and things that they needed. And the woman was going to be surprised because Jews typically did not talk to the Samaritans. And so she's going to say to Jesus, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And then here in verse 10, he's going to reply very straightly. If you only knew the gift that God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket. And this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And she's going to go on to say, and besides that, what water do you have to offer that you think is better than than the water that Jacob had and he, he gave to his children and he gave to his animals? How can you offer better water than that? And so this is where I'm going to pick up in verse 13. Uh, If you guys want to stand in, in, in observance of the reading of God's word. John chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Jesus is going to reply, Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water that I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within you, giving you eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, and then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get it. Go and get your husband, Jesus tells her, and she's going to say, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband, for you've had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man that you're currently living with. You have certainly spoken the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim that it's here on the Mount of Jerism, where our ancestors worship? And Jesus is going to reply, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him. For salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it is here now, when true worshipers will will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And the Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the woman's going to say... I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. 
Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Dear God, just thank you for this morning. I just thank you for the youth doing such an awesome job, God, just uh, delivering us to a place at your throne where we can worship you. Continue to be with your service this morning. Let us open our hearts and our minds to receive your word as as, as you give it to us. And let us just walk out of these doors um, better and excited and ready to serve you, Lord. It's your name that we pray and we ask all things. Amen. All right, you guys can all be seated. I've been told to keep it under a couple of hours, so I think we're going to be okay this morning. So the first thing here that we need to take from this is that Jesus offers living water. Okay, in verse 15, please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, and then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come to get the water. Okay, whenever I get a rumbly in my tumbly, you know, like Pooh Bear, whenever I get that rumbly in my tumbly, I have to satisfy that hunger that I have. Whenever I get thirsty, I have to satisfy that thirst that's within me. I feel like Pooh Bear sometimes because I get so hungry that I feel like my head and half of my body is hung up in the honey pot and I can't get myself out. But I'm just so excited about feeding that hunger that I have within me, about quenching that thirst that was within me, longing to be satisfied, that I stop at no end to get there. Even if I make a complete fool of myself by digging straight into the honey pot. See, the water in the well didn't have a power to quench, okay? This woman is hung up on the fact of this water. She's thinking that this is a literal water that Jesus is giving her. And what you guys know as well as I do is that when we involve ourselves in the things of this world, whenever we focus ourselves on on getting this water that the world has to offer us, it's a temporary satisfaction. It's something that tastes good for a little bit, but then it goes away. It's not sustaining Yes, it makes us feel good for a little while, and yes, it tides us over and maybe makes us feel a little, a little better than we felt previously, but it's not what God wants to give us. It's not what God wants to bless us with. The water in the well did not have the power to quench, but the water, the living water that Jesus spoke of, the living water that he said was going to be fresh and bubbling inside of you and giving you eternal life, that water has the ability to quench. That water has the ability to satisfy But before she could receive that living water, she had to confess and desire for forgiveness. Okay, the words, I'm sorry, mean nothing if you're not sorry. She had to get to a place where she was ready to completely give everything that she had, give everything over to God. That's why I think it's so interesting that whenever she's speaking to Jesus and Jesus comes back with, you know, he asks her, go get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. He says, yeah, I know that. You've been married five times and divorced. And the man that you currently live with is not your wife. I mean, he's not your husband. What was going on there was not Jesus saying, I got you. Like we think so often. We think that whenever we do wrong and we get caught, all of a sudden we get caught up in, oh my gosh, people are going to know my innermost secrets. People are going to figure me out. I'm busted. I'm caught. And that's what we think Jesus is. I was talking to the youth about this the other night. We think that God is sitting up in some far off place with a pair of binoculars watching us, just waiting for that moment when we trip up and whenever he can say, ha, I gotcha. But he's not like that at all. In fact, it's the opposite of that. He loves us so much that in those moments when we're tempted by that sin, and even in those moments when we give in to that sin, he wants to say, I'm still here to forgive you. I'm still here to love you. I'm still here with open arms saying that I've got you regardless of the sin, regardless of the circumstance, and regardless of how bad that you feel like it may be. It's not an I gotcha. And right here, Jesus is not saying I gotcha. And the woman's going to be a little overwhelmed and she's going to try to change the subject, but it's going to come back around because Jesus was just that good at making people feel loved and at ease 
comfortable and welcomed. And so that's what Jesus does. But she has to desire for forgiveness. The next part here is when the woman realized that he knew her sins, like I said, she changed the subject. Okay, she wasn't ready at that moment for repentance. First off, she didn't even really know who it was that she was talking to. But she wasn't ready for repentance in that moment. In that moment, she was probably embarrassed. She probably did feel like, oh my gosh, everybody knows. I mean, this person I've never even seen before, he's a Jewish man from somewhere else, and now he knows my sins. He knows what I've done wrong. He knows about the places I've been and the things that I've done. And so quickly she's going to say, oh, uh, well, you know, why then is it that um, you, you, you Jews claim that we have to worship in Jerusalem, but as the Samaritans we say that we worship here at the Mount Jerism. Uh, and I know that I'm mispronouncing that. I don't know how you pronounce it, but we're just going to call it Jerism because I'm the guy with the microphone right now. She wants to change the subject. She wants to know why is it that you guys feel this and I feel that because she's wanting to deflect the attention back to him, back to Jesus. And Jesus is going to say, it doesn't really matter. One day, it's not going to matter where people claim is the best place to worship. When she realizes that he was the Messiah, or in Greek, Messiah, which is the king who has God's approval, when she realizes that he has that approval and that authority, she accepts it. She didn't accept him because she knew scripture. She didn't accept him because she knew that who the Messiah was and she had studied about him. At this time, they were still reading what we call the Old Testament. And so they knew of the Messiah coming and they knew that, that he was going to be sent by God, but they weren't ready to accept that, that he was there at that time. And so when she realizes who he is, she accepts it in that moment. Not because she was afraid of him and not because, like I said, scripture said who he was, but because he knew her sin, he loved her anyway, and he was prepared to cover her sin. All of that became abundantly clear to her in that moment. He didn't say those things and go, huh, well now, what do you have to say for yourself? Because that's a very human thing for us to do, right? When we look down our noses at people and whenever we catch them doing something, we say, mm-hmm, and what do you have to say for yourself, young lady? But Jesus didn't do this. Jesus stood there and said... He still continued to go on and say who he was. He didn't get disgusted or grossed out. He didn't start shouting unclean and run into the city. He stayed there with her. He spoke with her. And he says, I have a gift for you. A gift that is going to cover all of your sins. The sins that you've committed, the sins that you are currently committing, and the sins that you will commit one day. He said it is all covering. And she goes, I want that water. And when she realized that he had the authority to give it, like I said, that Greek word, Messiah, the authority from God to give that gift, she wanted it. Think about John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This was the living example of coming through the Son to get to the Father. And she was not so sinful that Jesus was turned away. He was scared. He did not look at her and say, oh my gosh, I don't want to be a part of this anymore and take off. Because see, the value of this, the value of the Samaritan woman is the same value that we all possess. All are valuable to God. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter which church, church that you worship in. As long as our worship is on God and as long as we accept the free gift of salvation, we're set. 
I'm not one of these guys who gets up here and says, you guys have it wrong, or you guys have it wrong, or this church needs to be more like us. No, I feel that if we are a Bible-believing, God-fearing, Christ-accepting church, we're good to go. And this is exactly the evidence of that. Like John 14, 6 says, come through me in order to get to the Father. And he's not one of these guys who says, if you want to talk to the Father, then you're going to have to come through me. No, he says, come to me to get to the Father. Because he had a gift that he was ready to share and to give to her. Romans chapter 5, it says that most would not die for an upright person. Maybe a few would die for a really, really good person. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There was nothing. When Christ came to this world, it wasn't like, okay, God, God wasn't like, okay, Christ, okay, Jesus, you're ready to go down to earth now because I think these earthlings finally have it figured out. They're finally behaving in a way that is good enough that they can accept the gift of salvation. No, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we are at our ugliest, when we are at our worst, think about it this way. He loved us even before we accept him. He loved us even before we were created with a knowledge of the things that we were going to do wrong. And he loved us anyway, not because we were good enough. I think about the Casting Crown song, not because of who I am, but because of what you've done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. He loved us before we ever turned to Him. And that is a truly humbling experience for me. Because I think I'm not good enough some days, even when I'm a youth minister and I'm in the Word and I'm praying, there are still days where I feel like, or that I know that I'm not good enough for God. And even in those days, which are the best of what we have to offer, we don't come close on our own. But because of how good He is, we're good enough. Because his arms reach out enough to bridge that gap, we're good enough. Like the illustration that I know you guys have seen before, because Jesus died on the cross and stretched across that canyon, we are good enough. Matthew chapter 18, we are all unlovable. It's why we need a Savior. I'm going to flip back over here right quick to Matthew 18, because there's a few verses that I want you guys to hear here. All right. Um, Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 1. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Okay, these disciples are asking Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Listen to these things. Jesus called a little child to him. And then he said, I'll tell you the truth. Unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you'll never get into the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who becomes humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Anyone who welcomes this little child is welcoming me also. A little bit further down, verse 6. If you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin, it'd be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Verse 10. Beware that you don't look down on any of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels are always in the presence of my heavenly Father. Flipping over to chapter 19, starting in verse 13. One day some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could lay his hands on them and pray for them, but the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. Even though just not even a chapter ago, Jesus was saying all these great things about children, the disciples are going to scold these parents for bringing their children unto him. And this is what's going to happen. Jesus is going to say, let the children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like these children. And he placed his hands on their heads, and he blessed them before they left. This is what I want for you to take from that. Okay, first off, we are to love children, because there is a special place in God's heart for children. 
I really, truly, truly believe that. As someone who has spent my entire adult life working with kids in various capacities, I can tell you that there is a special joy and a happiness in children. And I know that our Heavenly Father looks down on that, and He's smiling the whole way. And that's why there's such an emphasis in these verses over in Matthew about children. As we were watching these children this morning, they're just so cute. Their personalities are just so pure. But here's the deal. Children have little to offer God. See, when the disciples were asking this question about who, you know, who's going to find favor in the kingdom of heaven, they were looking for a way to advance themselves. Okay, They were looking for a way to promote their place in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus said, it doesn't matter what you have or what you bring to the table. Realize that you need to be like one of these children. Pure. Brutally honest at times. Innocent. Sweet. Without an agenda not coming with a way to manipulate the system so that we may be better. Just come to me like these children. And that is how you can find favor in my kingdom. That's how you can move yourself forward in the kingdom. We're all unlovable. It's why we needed a Savior. When I was younger, I surrendered to the ministry. And I always had this bargain with God. I was like, God, I will do anything that you want me to do. I worked in camp ministry for five years. Um, you know, I've been working here at the church now for about five and a half years. I've served in different capacities. I've been the background guy. I've spoken at events. I've been in a band that has gone and played at different revivals and D-Now weekends and church services and all kinds of stuff. I mean, I've, I've done various roles in ministry. But there was one rule that I had for God. I said, God, whatever you do, don't you dare, under any circumstance, call me to missions. Because it's not my thing. I don't want these, these dirty, smelly, snotty, sick kids coming up on me. Like that is just God, I mean, we, we got a good deal going as long as you don't call me to do that. And I know this makes me sound like a really bad person. I know it makes me sound like a jerk, but just follow me for a little bit. See, I did not want to be that guy. That was not my place, I felt like. There is no way, God, that I can effectively minister for you in that capacity. It's just not for me. I grew up in a church. My grandparents live outside of Victoria, Texas. Some of you guys know this. And my mom, there were different times where we lived in Victoria and we lived close to Victoria and around Victoria. So Crescent Valley Baptist Church down there is kind of what I've always called my home church. And it was in that church that I surrendered to the ministry. It was in that church that I uh, came to know the Lord. It was in that church um, that many men impressed upon me. Because here's the deal. When I was a kid, I wasn't always the most lovable. (laughs) I know that's hard to believe because I'm so lovable as an adult. But when I was a kid, I wasn't always the most lovable. I didn't have it all figured out. Sometimes my hair was a little undone. Most embarrassing story from my childhood was somehow I ended up catching lice while I was getting my hair cut, and they wouldn't cut my hair because I had lice. And that's one of those things that's hung with me forever. I was that guy. There were times where I was the smelly kid. There were times where I felt like I was unlovable. The way that teachers treated me made me feel sometimes like they didn't want me in their classrooms. They didn't want anything to do with me. I felt like I was an outcast. But there were two men in that church in particular that had an impression on me when I grew up. One of them's name was Mike Severe. Mike Severe was kind of like our RA's leader. And he's the first guy that I ever remember. Now, granted, when I was a baby, it probably happened, even though my poor mama was gave birth to me and I was probably about five foot two, two hundred and fifty pounds. But when I was a child, I wasn't one that was picked up and swung around very much. And for kids, it's a big deal to get picked up and swung around and just 
And I was never that guy. Mike Severe is the first guy that I remember ever picking me up and swinging me around. He was the first guy that I ever felt looked at me and made me feel like I was like the other kids. Not my friend Waylon, not my friend Jeremy, who came from, you know, a different kind of family dynamic than I came from. Not those guys who coincidentally weighed probably about half of what I weighed. But he made me feel loved. He made me feel like a lightweight who was just swung around. And I, I remember that day, and I know it's one of those, there's just one of those moments that stuck out in me from when I was a kid that just really sealed it all up. The other person from that experience was a man by the name of Carlos Martinez. This was a man who loved the Lord. He did so many different jobs. And he would bring God into conversations. He was a car salesman, I believe. And he would bring it up, you know, when he was selling people cars. He would show up at church with people that he had sold cars to because he had witnessed to them, shared the gospel with them, and then invited them to church. That's what I'm talking about. Okay, that's the kind of guy that we need to be. But both of these men impressed me in such a big way. And so coincidentally, when I went to this church about the calling to be in the ministry, and they said that they wanted to license me as a minister, I was excited. But Brother Carlos was sick at that time. And what ended up happening the week before I went to give my sermon was Brother Carlos went on to be with the Lord. And this was a man who impressed upon so many people, people in the community, his family, people in the church, me personally, and I remember the preacher coming to me and saying, this is going to be kind of a, a tough tough sermon. Are you sure you still want to do this? And I said, absolutely, because I know he's going to be standing up there with me. And it was awesome and it was great because these men invested in me. And he told me as a kid, he would sit there, he had these nubs for fingers. He sat there and he would just, oh, Robert, I'm just excited about how God's going to use you one day, brother. God's going to hear my mom. She's just over there beaming right now. I'm just excited that my mom was able to come this morning because she can remember seeing him doing this. He'd be like, I just see you in front of a church and I see you leading people to the Lord. Oh, Robert, just be patient with him. He's going to show you what he wants you to do. I'd be like, this old man's crazy. (laughs) That's not me. I'm not doing that. He was right. I just didn't know it yet. But see, because these men invested in me, because these men loved me, even as a child, even when I had little to offer the church, because they impressed upon me at that time, I was able to grow into the godly man that I am today. And that, if no other reason, is why I invest in the lives of these young people daily. In the hallways at school, when I'm staying up here at a fifth quarter after I've drove a bus and taught and announced a football game and it's getting late, I'm here. And I'm sacrificing time with my own family, time at my kids' taekwondo and softball games and and horse lessons and everything else so that I can do God's work, so that I can invest in young people. And please don't in any way take that as a prideful, everybody look at how awesome Robert is statement because it is not at all. It is just to say that is how important it is that we invest in the resources of children, that we love these young people because one day they may be standing up here doing exactly what I'm doing, only looking much better doing it and being a lot better at it because I'm unworthy by myself. Only by the grace of God am I able to do anything. The Samaritan woman, she was an outcast, even from her own people. 
That's why she was there in the noontime heat. She couldn't go at the time when the other women went because she was an outcast. And so she would rather go by herself in the noontime heat than face the whispers and the the feelings of not belonging that she would have faced if she went with everybody else. She felt unvaluable and unwanted, but finally she found herself loved and cared for. This woman didn't even love herself. But she found a moment where she was loved and she was cared for. This church is grace. Regardless of how dirty she was, regardless of how wrong her past was or the mistakes that she had made, Jesus stood there and said, Sister, I love you and I want to give you the gift of living water that is going to allow for you to have eternal life with my heavenly Father. That was a beautiful gift. It was undeserved for her just like it would be for me or anybody else in this room. But he loved her anyway. That is grace. The last thing I want to touch on here real quickly is our testimony is a powerful, powerful, powerful witness. It says that as soon as she realized who he was, if we look down here at 27, it says that at that time the disciples come back. Jesus has told her, I am the Messiah. And the disciples are going to come back and they're going to be shocked to find him talking to this woman, but they're not going to ask him any questions about it because that was just what Jesus does. And it says in verse 28, the woman left her water jar beside the well and she ran Back to the village. She ran. She forgot the whole reason she had even come there because of the experience with her Savior that she had just had. She ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything that I've ever done. Could it be that he is possibly the Messiah? She didn't care about her reputation. She didn't care about her image. She didn't care about her past choices. Because she had a message to share. See, Jews had been hearing about the coming Messiah for thousands of years. Just over a, a, just over a couple of pages in chapter 3, Nicodemus had a knowledge of the Messiah, but not of salvation. That's where this woman was. She had an understanding of what the Messiah was and, and what it meant to the world, but she didn't know what the gift of salvation was until Jesus presented her to that day. We must know God that is in the Bible and not just understand what God is or who God is. We have to truly know who the God is that's in the Bible that is spoken of. She was an active witness from that point forward. Samaritans knew who she was. They knew that she had done things wrong. And if the Messiah had been presented, had presented the gospel to her, then that made it that much greater that, that if she was forgiven for her sins and if God would even talk to her, if Jesus would come forward in front of her, how much more so would he be willing for the others? And so that's why the other people, they're going to go and they're going to, when Jesus comes, they're going to say, come stay with us for a while. Come set up camp. And it says that Jesus is going to stay there for a couple of days. They knew her reputation. They knew mistakes that she had made. And that's what spoke to them because they thought, if she can be forgiven, I can be accepted. I can be forgiven as well. Because what happened was, is just like with her, they finally felt loved. Samaritans for years were cast, were outcast and cast aside because of their, uh, the mixing of who they were. Because they weren't totally Jewish. They weren't Jewish enough. And so they were cast out. And so that's why they set these communities up and they had their own place to worship away from Jerusalem so that they could still talk to God. Because they knew that there was a God who still loved them. And that the Savior was for them as well, not just for the Jewish people. 
they needed was someone to come forward and love them and accept them. I think I told you this. Some teachers sometimes, I was a little bit of a problem when I was younger. I like to tell people that I was just a little ahead of my time. That I was bored with some of the elementary grades because I was already a little bit ahead of them. But I had a teacher in the fifth grade by the name of Mrs. Fernandez. And the youth have heard me talk about her before. She was the first teacher I ever remember loving me. She believed in me. She had me doing UIL events, and she was encouraging me in my schoolwork. Whenever I would, whenever I would do well, she would just really gloat and brag on me and made me feel good. It was so good to feel loved. It was so good to have that teacher that wanted to hug me every day, even if I wasn't the model student, even if I wasn't the best kid in the class, and even if I wasn't the best kid in the world. Ask my mom. She had a couple of stinkers that were growing up in her house. But she loved me anyway. This is the way the Samaritans felt when Jesus came. He loved them anyway. People have been telling them their whole lives that they weren't loved, but he loved them anyway. Knowing the heaviness of our sin and the change that God brings about brings a curiosity from people. Um, you think about whenever you see before and after pictures of people who have gone through a, a weight loss, People look at that and they, they, there's credibility in that. We're the same way. When people look at us and they say, I knew Robert once upon a time. And the fact that he's a Christian and that God loves him and God is using him says that this God must be ready to love anybody. Because if he can make something out of Robert and out of Robert's life, then I know he can do something for me. If Jesus can love this Samaritan woman who's made all these mistakes with her life, then he must be able to love me as well. And that's the kind of dude that we want to welcome into our village and have him sit down and stay for a while. That's the way that the church has got to be. They knew her sins, but they also shared her feelings of being unloved. And because of God's love, because of Christ's desire to meet the people where they were at, they too felt love. Christ's love changed them forever. Just like it changed us. But here's the deal. Just like with the water, we have to have an excitement and a desire to want to share that gift with other people. I make the joke sometimes that what we do is, is if you're familiar with the Lord of the Rings and you think about Gollum and he's got this precious, and that's how we treat Christianity sometimes. That's how we treat our faith. That's how we treat the Savior. We go, it's mine. Stay away from it. When really what we're supposed to be doing is saying, here, come look at it. You want to touch it? Come touch it. Here, you want to take a piece of it with you? Go ahead. There's plenty for everybody. We need to be welcomely sharing that with everyone. Instead of huddling up over it and hiding it in a secret corner of our room that we pull out conveniently whenever we feel like it. There is a harvest that is just dying to be harvested. Because I don't know my agricultural terms. There is just a group of people that are just ready, that are hungry. Look at the world. Look at the news, people. People are putting their faith in all kinds of things. They're putting their faith in rocks and in nature and in trees and in science and in all of these different things because there is a curiosity and there is a hunger. And as Christians, we have the perfect opportunity to show Christ's love, to witness and to welcome, to open our arms and to embrace. But we don't take it serious enough. Like I said, put that on a lampstand, hold it out in front for everybody to see, but say, everybody, please, come see what I've got. Come take a look at this. 
And you can get as close as you want. It's not going to hurt you. It's not going to bite. Just come on. I want to share my gift with you. And I want to grow in my knowledge of this gift so that when you have questions, you can come to me and ask and I can answer those questions for you. Because we want more of that gift. We have a hunger and a thirst that cannot be quenched by the things of this world. We have a thirst that cannot be fixed by pulling a bucket of water out of the ground or turning on a faucet. We have a hunger and a thirst. Our spiritual desires and yearnings parallel with our physical desires and yearnings. And it's about time that we start feeding our spiritual desires and yearnings. We have got to start feeding ourselves with the Word of God. We have got to take the Word of God then and share it with others and feed them so that they too can have their thirst quenched. We can't keep it to ourselves anymore. There's too many. That's the problem with our world. These young people are growing up without Christ. They're growing up without a church family. They're growing up without being loved and accepted in the house of God. And we have got to do that. If nowhere else, it needs to be happening at First Baptist Rogers. Because now that we're aware of it, we've got to know that we've got to do it. It is too important. Children are the most valuable resource that we got. I don't care how you feel about gasoline. I don't care how you feel about oil and other things that are important and stuff. Children are our greatest resource. And it is time that we invest and we love them. And even those adults who sometimes can be a little unloving at times and a little hard to approach and a little hard to get close to, those are the ones that we most need to be waving that right in front of their faces and say, please, 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 please have some of this. Let me share my gift with you. Um, John chapter 15, verses 12 and 13. I'm going to share those real quick, and that's going to be the end of it. Love each other in the same way that I have loved you. This is Jesus speaking, by the way. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for friends. I'm not saying that you've got to lay down your life, but I'm saying listen, help, encourage, and give. What can you do to encourage and give and love the people around you today? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask the guys to come up here, and we're going to have a time of invitation And it's not going to be a traditional invitation. We're not going to sing along. What I want for us to do is just have a time of prayer, a time of reflection. If you want to come up here to the front and pray at the altar, you're more than welcome to do that. If you want to pray right where you're at, you're more than welcome to do that. You don't have to get on your knees or anything. You can just stand there and bow your head and pray. But this is what I want you to pray about. God, what are you saying to me? God, what are you calling me to do? God, let my focus be clear 100% on you. Some of you may be saying, I have a lot of questions that I need answers for, and that's why I've got Brother Allen up here. Not only has Brother Allen taught me so much about God, but he's also taught me everything I know about knitting as well. If you have any questions, if you have any business or things that you need to take care of, please come and talk to Allen. Or come and talk to me. I'll go down there as well. But whatever you do, it's time that we as a church come together and start to love one another, just like Christ loved us, just like God loved us. It's time for us to love each other. Let's go ahead and let's bow our heads. Dear Lord, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for love. I thank you for salvation. And I thank you, God, that even though we mess things up, 
and we don't get life right, God, that you love us anyway. Forgive us, Lord, and thank you for the absolutely 100 and completely free gift of salvation because I don't deserve it. But I'm thankful that I have it. And I'm thankful that you thought enough of me to give it, Lord. And now, if anyone needs that in return, please let me and all of these other people in this church be ready to give it to them as well. It's your name we pray and we ask all things. Amen.